says, be thankful when you suffer for doing good, but, but don't suffer because of unrighteousness. And he's not talking about that we suffer because, because we're arrogant. He's not talking because we suffer because we have a way of life that, that we want to promote over against everybody else, and so we, we speak with hatred towards others or we demonize others. Peter calls that out and said, no, that's not the suffering that Jesus is talking about. He's talking much more about when we follow Christ faithfully and that leads to this brokenness and this discomfort between us and the world around us. Jesus prays into this space, the space of this discomfort that he knows is coming, this, this hatred and this trouble and this struggle of how to follow him and be his disciples and how to live in the world still. And it strikes me that the first thing he prays along these lines is I pray for them so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I thought the first thing he would have prayed in this is keep them safe, isolate them, protect them, cause all their enemies to fall away, make it so that they don't have any discomfort. That's how my North American prayer would go. In fact, that's how my North American prayer often goes. Keep my enemies far away from me, even if I can't picture who an enemy is. Keep me comfortable, God. Make sure I have enough money in my bank account. Make sure that, that I, I've got time to rest and to play and, and, and make sure I have all the good things. Right? And Jesus prays, I'm praying so that they might have the full measure of my joy within them. What a reframe. I mean, in the context of persecution and suffering, Jesus talks about joy and the full measure of his joy being within us. That's his deep desire. Jesus' desire is not for our safety and our comfort. His desire is that in the midst of the world we live in, that we would be full of his joy. The full measure. Kind of take that, that cup that you have at home, that measuring cup, you know, the little four-cupper you use in baking. If you don't know what I'm talking about, ask your spouse or someone else in the house to help you figure out what a baking cup is. You fill it up, and you let that thing overflow. It's the idea. It's, it's bountiful. It's extra. It's more than what you need. This full measure of Jesus' joy overflowing within us. And remember the context he's praying in. He's praying just before he goes to the cross. Just before he's arrested and spit on and beaten and falsely accused and condemned. And what's on his mind is that we might be full of his joy. Not sorrow, not bitterness, not hatred towards the world, not angry, not anything else. But that we might be full of joy. His joy. It got me digging when I saw that. How in the world's possible? How, how do we have joy? And I started thinking in terms of the image of, of, of when am I joyful? One of the times I'm joyful is when my kids give me gifts, right? No? Yeah. I do like it when, when you give me gifts. 
It's that idea of you get a present, right? And, and someone gives you a present and says, I have a gift for you. And your eyes kind of light up and, and, and you want to unwrap it. And Well, at least in my house, I like to rip the paper off. Some people like to take it off very carefully and pull it out. We all express joy in different ways. And I tear at it and I rip it open and I want to see what's inside. And this passage has that same sense, that that gift of joy that Christ is praying for us has gifts with it in this text. And I want us to pay attention to those three gifts that come up in here. There may be more of them, but three of them I saw. One, Jesus says to the Father, I have given them your word. And then he comes back to that image of, of the gift of the word towards the end of the passage and says that word is what makes them holy. He uses a word that that sometimes sounds really churchy, sanctify. It's based on Latin and Greek and all sorts of other, other older language stuff that we hardly do anything with anymore. But the idea of sanctify is to make us holy. It has a sense of setting us apart for a specific purpose. Some people talk about it as consecrating. It's saying this person is designated for something, something important. And Jesus is saying, I've given them the gift of your word that they could be made holy. They could be set apart in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all the struggle, that they could, be, they could be set aside for a purpose. In the midst of the world, in the midst of the suffering they're going to incur and experience, I'm giving you the gift of my word that my word will help you see and live in the truth of who I am and in the truth of what God is doing. Think if joy is possible, and it is. If joy is possible, this gift of joy that Jesus is giving to us, the first thing he's saying is, I'm giving you my word to make that joy possible. It it puts on us a, a, a responsibility to receive that gift. I mean, my my kids could give me a wonderful gift, right? And I could go and put it up on my dresser and I could look at it and never touch it. It's only when I actually interact with that gift and I start to use it that that gift begins to have a sense of joy and purpose. And it's the same thing with God's Word. We, We could take God's Word and we could have it sit out on our coffee table, we could have it sit on our nightstand, but if we're not opening it, not engaging it, we're not going to experience the joy God has for us. There is a gift being given to us in God's word that we enter it and we engage it. We engage it as God's people. The second gift that comes out in this passage, Jesus has given us a character like his. One is that one that is different than the world's. And he says, it says twice in here, they're not part of the world. My disciples are not of the world. They don't have the same character, the same values, the same priorities. They're, they have a different, different approach to life. And that's okay because I'm not of this world either. In other words, Jesus is saying to his disciples and letting us know through this word here that, that it's okay to be like him. It's okay not to fit in. It's okay not to look like the rest of the world around us. It's okay. Because we're starting to look more like Jesus. He's giving us the gift of his character, something we couldn't earn on our own, 
is something we couldn't develop on our own, no matter how much religious effort we put in. We could never grow Christ's character in us on our own. That's what led to our sin in the first place and our fallenness and brokenness from God. And yet Jesus is saying here, in the midst of their struggles that they're going to experience, in the midst of this tension of how they live in a world that doesn't line up with them, I'm giving them the gift of my character. Jesus gives us his word and his character together that we might experience his joy. And one more gift. I ask you not to take them out of the world, but I'm sending them into the world just as you have sent me into the world. Jesus is saying their joy is going to be found in my word their joy is going to be found in my character, and their joy is going to be found in my mission. As they participate in doing the things I did, in living the way I lived, and being rooted in the very word of life that you have given us, they're going to experience joy. And so I'm sending them into the world, into a place that's going to have suffering, into a place that's going to misunderstand them, into a place that will actually persecute them and kill some of them. I'm sending them just as you have sent me, Father. He comes back to this, actually, after the resurrection. One of the powerful passages in, in John is after the resurrection, and Thomas has been doubting, and others have been doubting, and, and Jesus shows up in the upper room where they're sitting there trembling and afraid of the world around them, and what's going to happen, and they've heard rumblings that Jesus' grave is empty, and some of them have seen the empty grave, and all of a sudden Jesus shows up in the locked room with them. He says, it's me. Touch my hands. Touch my side. See that I'm really here with you. And then he breathes on them and gives them the gift of the Holy Spirit and says, just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus doing all of this, not because it's good for us, but, but fundamentally because he wants us to have the full measure of his joy alive within us. Isn't this incredible? In this text, right before he's arrested, right before he dies, even while his disciples are sleeping, Jesus is praying for them that they might be filled with joy and that joy would be experienced as they are rooted in his word, they're rooted in his character, and they're rooted in his mission. That we begin to think and act and live like Jesus in this world. So where do we apply it? Peter wrestles with this a little bit of trying to apply it. And he, he comes to this point and says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter was well aware that the world wasn't even going to understand what they were doing. Peter was well aware, having lived past Christ and seen the persecution start, that there's going to be trouble. And in the midst of that, he says, that's okay. Even if the world accuses you of doing wrong, do right. Live faithfully. Live by the way God has called you to live. Because when you do, even those who don't believe now will on that day of Christ acknowledge 
God and give God thanks. Paul helps us in this regard as well. He repositions it a little bit in our our posture towards the world around us. And the, the temptation we have as Christians is to see the world as our enemy and to see the world and the people in the world as our enemies and ones who are out to get us. And Paul cautions us, and he cautions the Ephesians and when he writes, and he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the people in the world. They're God's beloved. It's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He's helping us to remember that people are not our enemies. They're the beloved ones of God, whom God desires that every person would come to flourish. One of my seminary classmates, and I think I may have shared this story before, we had a, a season of praying for the world, and we had a couple days where we, we kind of did this 20, uh, kind 24-hour of prayer, so there was always a prayer going on in the, the chapel at the seminary. And, and we tried as much as possible, because there were people from all over the world, to have people give prayers from their home country or in reference to their home country. And so John got up there and He's from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And this was at a time where there was such abuse and violence among the Congolese government. And he got up there and he prayed. He started his prayer. Bless the president. Bless his cabinet members. May they prosper, Lord. And he went on to pray for their blessing and their goodness and that they might flourish. And a couple of us afterwards said, how can you pray that prayer? They're the ones abusing people. They're kidnapping people. They're, kid- they're killing people. They're doing all sorts of atrocious things. They're stealing money that's being loaned by other governments. All this stuff can be documented. How can you pray for their blessing? He said, no, because the only way they're going to be blessed is if they come to know God. We've got to understand blessing as different than the material blessing the world talks about. Blessing as being coming in right relationship with God and right relationship with the people in the world around us. And so I will pray for their blessing because I understand what biblical blessing is about. That they might flourish means they're going to flourish and so will the people who have been placed under their authority. It caught me short. It taught me a lot about this passage. Praying not against people against the powers and the principles of darkness in this world. Instead, praying for people. Mark Charles is a member of the Christian Reformed Church. He's from the Navajo tribe, grew up in New Mexico. Mark said recently, Christians are most effective politically when they engage in a way that is prophetic, not partisan has a lot to do with the context in the United States, and that's where he's speaking it in, but it applies everywhere. It's applying to that context of not us versus them. Not liberals against new Democrats, right? Not liberals against conservatives. It's not us versus them. It's not a power control thing. It's us as Christians saying we see a vision of God's kingdom coming that will cause the whole world to flourish. And regardless of your political affiliation, we want everyone to prosper. We want the world to flourish. And so we're going to speak into that environment, not in a partisan way, not in an us-them power grab way that the world knows, but in a way that calls all of us to serve God more faithfully in this world. 
a little help with applying this to our political context then. Our world belongs to God. It's called a contemporary testimony. It's one of the documents that the Christian Reformed Church uses to talk about how do we live as Christians today. And in a couple paragraphs, I'll read from that. The first is this one. We obey God first. We respect the authorities that rule, for they are established by God. We pray for our rulers, and we work to influence governments, resisting them only when Christ and conscience demand. We are thankful for the freedoms enjoyed by citizens of many lands, and we grieve with those who live under oppression, and we seek for them the liberty to live without fear. It strikes me as this isn't passive. Do you see how active this is? This isn't Christians retreat from the world, Christians withdraw from the world. It's Christians engage in the context in which I have placed you. Christians, I have sent you into this world to be like me. Now engage. Let's highlight a few of those. Obey God first. There's, there's an active, I need to have my relationship with, right with God and know God and seek God and follow him. We respect the authorities that rule for they are established by God. It's so tempting to trash Donald Trump. It is. It's so tempting to demean his character because of the things he says. But this would call us and challenge us not to demean his character, but instead to speak respectfully about him, even when he is acting in ways that we say are unfitting for his role and the authority given to him. We pray for our rulers not just pray that they might lose an election when they're failing to lead the way they should, but we pray for them, like my classmate prayed for the Congolese government. We work to influence governments. We don't say, ah, the government's going to do whatever it wants. It's hopeless. It's helpless. No, we work in ways to influence the governments to bring about good. We take a thankful posture for the freedoms enjoyed by citizens of many lands. That includes us. So on a weekend like this, we can celebrate with the rest of the Canadian citizenship and those who live here as residents and those who are guests here. We can celebrate and say, isn't God good? Look at the faithfulness he has displayed to all of us and we can rejoice in what God has given us. And at the same time that we do that, it's not contradictory for us to be praying for other places in the world and even places and experiences here where people don't yet experience the full freedom. All active. We seek the liberty for others that they might live without fear. It puts us in a posture, I don't know if you're catching that in there, but it puts us in a posture of service a servanthood posture towards the world around us and to the people around us where we can celebrate God's faithfulness on one hand and lament the places on the other where God's faithfulness is not yet known and experienced. It goes on. Here's how it continues the next paragraph. We call on all governments to do public justice and to protect the rights and freedoms of individuals, groups, and institutions so that each may do their tasks we urge governments and pledge ourselves to safeguard children and the elderly from abuse and exploitation, to bring justice to the poor and oppressed, and to promote the freedom to speak, work, worship, and associate. I like that it says we call on all governments. The original global citizens are supposed to be Christians. 
people who don't retreat into a nationalism, but people who are concerned for the well-being of the whole world because he's got the whole world in his hands. The whole earth is full of God's glory, and because of that, we are concerned for the well-being of the whole world, including people who live in other cultures and speak other languages that we don't understand. We urge governments and pledge ourselves. I love this combination. I first started seeing this when I was studying John Calvin a little bit and how he handles benevolence. So benevolence is our church word for the deacons having money that they use to help people who are in financial need. And John Calvin, when he talks about it, he breaks it into three categories and he says the church has responsibility here for making sure they care for the people who are Christians. The government has responsibility for making sure they care for all citizens in their in their community and under their jurisdiction. And each one of us has a responsibility for caring for our neighbor to the best of our ability. You know what's kind of funny about that? He lived it out. There was this place in his time called the Green Dog Inn. Green Dog Inn, it's a great name for an inn. And at the Green Dog Inn, there's actually a historical ledger that has John Calvin's name written in it that he paid the tabs for, for random travelers who were coming through that city. And when they came through that city, it has the name of some of the people. And so he, we actually have record of him paying the lodging for Muslims. There was a Muslim who was traveling through that area, and it has it written down that John Calvin saw the need and paid for their lodging bill. It puts something in front of us. It's not just the government's job to fix welfare and fix things that are wrong and take care of the poor. It's all of us. It's not just the government's job to pass laws that protect the, the young and the old. It's all of us. And what we're called to is to live lives of service that we are always looking out for the children and the elderly, that we're looking out for in promoting justice and working for justice for the poor and the oppressed, no matter where they are and where we are. And we're finding ways to promote freedom so that everyone has a voice and the opportunity to discover God and to worship and to associate with each other. I find it remarkable, a remarkable gift that God has given us, that we are in a denomination and among a Reformed tradition that has thought through things like this, that has taken a deep look at Scripture like we've done here this morning, and it's unpacked it and said, here's the gift for you. Here's ways we can live this out as God's people together. Not passive not retreating from the world, even when the world doesn't understand us, even when the world turns against us. We don't retreat and walk away. We press in. We give ourselves, our very lives, in service of the world because we're following Christ who lived and who died to set us free from our sins and all that came out of that so that we might have life and have it to the full. Let's pray. So often, Lord, we think of the joyful life as a life of escape. We hear it in our lottery commercials, imagining a life of leisure that's disconnected from pain and suffering, that allows us to pull away from brokenness and people who are hurting and mask our own hurts and our own sorrows. 
Forgive us for buying into that lie of the world around us. Help us instead to press in even as you did, that we might receive the fullness of your joy through the gifts you have given us of your word and your character and your mission. Equip us by your spirit to live faithfully here and now in the culture and in the place and under the government that you have given to us. And even as we do that here in this place, may you give us a vision for one day the whole world being renewed. We might speak out and act in ways that help others come to know you and experience the abundant life that you have for all of your creation in Jesus Christ. It's in him that we pray. Amen.